Admiral, are you there? Hello, Brian. Uh, we are getting subtitles um, now. I can't hear you if you can hear me. And not only can I hear you, I can actually see you being subtitled. Is that... Do we have an option to turn that off, Twitter? Yes. I'll just tell you. Oh, now I can hear you. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's the thing we do. It's, it's the, the thing. Stick. It's the shtick. And, and, and the shtick was complete with uh, Twitter spaces once again crapping out of me as soon as I started the space. Huh. It, which happens literally every time. I, and I, I made the, uh, <laughs> the arguably the mistake of checking for an app update. Um, before like two minutes beforehand, which is always a recipe. I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's like I think we've been burned when we haven't done that. And I would say that I haven't um, burned both ways, I feel. Well, I I feel like uh Twitter spaces is becoming a less effective torturer in that its failure modes are all (laughs) sort of known. You know what I mean? I feel like the when it would really get us was when we would get something new or different or sporadic each time. (laughs) It was a bit of a roulette wheel. Yeah, and this time it's like, okay, it's doing the thing it does. Like, your thing crashes. I can't hear you. And then, you know, it's, it, it settles in. It's, it's, a, it's a little Abbott and Costello routine for Twitter spaces. Yeah, exactly. does, does every Twitter space have this problem? If so, I would like to just dial into new Twitter spaces just so I can listen to other hosts going through this because it's kind of amusing. Yeah, I don't well. know. No. Don't Good for you. Me. I don't know. Go <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, that's what you want to spend your time. Actually, with. you know, I see fewer Twitter Spaces these days. I don't know about you, but like, I, fewer of them seem to pop up than than once upon a time. Okay, and okay, how correlated do you think that is with the crypto collapse? Because I feel like so many of those <laughs> were about crypto, right? Spot on. No, I I had not thought about it, but yes, I feel like most of them were like, get your NF- NFTs here. All right, so I'm going to invite a bunch of people to speak. Not all of them will be Googlers or ex-Googlers, because otherwise this is going to turn into a Zoogler therapy session. I, I mean, God bless it. I, I, I do, I do yes. love the Zooglers. Some of um, my best friends, yes. <laughs> some of my best friends are Zooglers, exactly. Okay, so we are here because, true to essentially everybody's predictions, Stadia. Stadia? Stadia. How do you pronounce that? Stadia, right? Surely. Stadia? Stadia? <laughs> Surely, Nadir. Look, <laughs> I, I'm just. Oh, I'm sorry. So yeah, Stadia. Yeah, I like. I want to punch myself in the mouth for saying Stadia. Who would not be? What kid would not get beaten up for saying Stadia? All right, Stadia. Clearly, Stadia. Um, the writing was on the wall for this one. I feel when they launched it. I mean, this was absolutely. I don't know. I feel <sighs> like it. Just the premise of it uh, seemed far fetched to me. I mean, what do I know? I mean, apparently, plenty. Uh, but you have gamers in your household, no? Yes, yes, yes. So I guess I have that. What do they think? Uh, uh, what did they? Literally, think? what is Stadia? I've never heard of that. That that, that was <laughs> okay. no, well, that was the reaction I got. All right, yeah, not, not necessarily. Like, a good time. You're making that up or pronouncing it wrong. But I mean, it has been observed by many that inside the confines of Google. And I should say I've never worked for Google, so obviously those that have, correct me where this is incorrect, but it, it, it feels that it is well known that Google incentivizes the creation of new things and does not incentivize quite as much the maintenance of existing things, to say the least. 
so the, I mean that and that Reddit comment was very true. And the other things I've seen as well, but the uh, it's very true to other things that we have certainly heard. And certainly this was true at Sun back in the day. Where I mean, do you remember hearing what kind of the criteria were for staff engineer, Adam? When we were, I no. Oh dear. So so famously, so Steve Kleinman, who went on to NetApp, I believe, right? Yeah. Um, was yeah. an early engineer at Sun, and famously, he was promoted to staff engineer for VNodes. Like the idea of a VNode, like that is what the the metric became. This was like the bar for staff engineer. It's a good idea. It's a, it is a good idea. It's definitely a good idea. Uh, it feels like uh, it's a little. I, so I feel I feel like there's something almost tautological about. And as a company itself matures, I mean, a company will be in a greenfield where very large things are possible simply because they haven't been done yet. And then as the company matures, the things that are done are going to necessarily be, they're going to feel more incremental, but in fact, they're going to represent, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of hard work that needs to be done. It's just, they feel less, less in terms of like new abstraction and so on. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think, and, and certainly at Sun, uh, you know, it was it was easier to see the shiny new thing rather than the people, you know, making it real and fixing all the bugs and satisfying customers for sure. So you had this idea that, like, all right, well, if Steve Kleinman invented V notes, like, what did you do? Which I think is kind of incentivized people to do, and I think Sun was, did not have this as bad as most, but incentivizing people to do kind of big grand things. And if you didn't feel like doing something big and grand, you were kind of like told you like, yeah, you're not going to get, you're kind of at the end of the line. Um, and uh, famously, I believe in Tom, I'm not sure if you knew Joel Eichel at, at Sun, but cause I think Joel Eichel was also, I think went to Ypsilon, I believe. Um, but Joe kind of famously left because he was told like, yeah, you're not going to kind of at the end of the line because you don't want to do something that's kind of grand and, and new, which is, I remember Jeff in particular was always very indignant about that because he felt it was the loss of a very good engineer because he was content to do very important engineering without inventing new abstraction, which I feel like we should incentivize engineers to, to do, right? That's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, uh, if everyone, whatever, obviously you can't, everyone can't gather around the shiniest objects and you just do that only. Um, at, uh, you know, I know it at Joint and now at Oxide, you didn't have engineering levels. Uh, I would say to just expose myself as, as a management dork a bit at Delphix, we did have management levels and we were very careful to make sure that things like staff and senior staff like applied equally across like QA and dev and different dev functions and so forth and really tried to phrase it in terms of the breadth of impact and like how many, you know, people and customers and internal processes and, and those kinds of things to, to kind of steer people away from just the new shine. Okay. So this is an interesting point because it's, you're right. Like we don't have leveling. I didn't have leveling at joint as well. Is leveling, is that the original sin? Do we create these incentives because we have the levels? Well, I think that, I mean, let, let me try this out on you. This might sound to Ryan Blum Breslau, but <laughs> I think that people, I think people do whatever the culture that they're in. Rewards, I think that's right. Yeah. By and large. Right. I agree. Right? Yeah. Like, like just, you know, squishy humans kind of 
react to other squishy humans and that's what we do. And so, I, you know, I was thinking about it oxide. And one of the things that is, is kind of a strong incentive is like demo yeah. day. People like having a thing to demo at demo day. And we also do a good job of, you know, applauding not just the newest, shiniest, wizziest thing, but someone's test infrastructure that lets us robustly test some really annoying to test part of the system. Totally. And I think, and so we, we do demos every Friday. It is totally unstructured is basically like, it is a forum for people to demonstrate their work. Like there's, it's no more, there's no more structure to it than that. It's not, uh, we don't grade people on it. People are not required to do it. Some people do it frequently. Others do it infrequently, but there's no, it's just, but I do agree with you, Adam, that like it's, I, I, and I, we've had, you know, folks join the company and they get kind of excited for when am I going to demo something? And they begin to kind of think of it in terms of that. And I think that's broadly so far pretty healthy, right? You tell me if it's not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, no, for sure. It seems very healthy. I think like any incentive and reward structure, uh, it could be, you know, we could be looking back in five years and thinking like, oh, geez, how do we get right. here? Because I think that lo- there are lots of incentive structures, I'm sure, like like the one at Google, that didn't intend to create this kinds of effect where people scurry away from the thing after release, after they got promoted. But you can imagine oh, like, yeah. managers oh, kind of taking their taking their reports aside and saying, okay, like you haven't demoed in a right. while. I really want to get you, you know, more money or more <laughs> oh, kudos or more. God, are you excited for the future? Uh, this is so terrible. A, a firmer pat on the head or whatever it is, you know, and say like, let's let's focus on demo, which is not to say uh, like that, that that it necessarily will be perverted in that way, but you can oh, see totally. it happening, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and actually that's most clear, I think in my experience in like sales organizations where, you know, setting up a comp plan is a very complicated thing to do. And I think that often sales engineers and, or pardon me, sales folks are motivated by additional money and they'll kind of optimized like protein folding they're they're so efficient in, in finding the best way to like extract cash from from a comp plan. yeah and I, I you know i think engineers are different in that like i think the motivations are are often more complex but uh, but still kind of find their own efficient ways to navigate it yeah and also just think one thing i wonder is you know as this domain has gone from um, it has become more and more lucrative. Have we perverted our incentives more and more? It feels like that way more people. I, I know people who've got plenty of money that have been really taught to care about even more money in a way that I don't understand. It is sort of like the simplest. I mean, it's sort of the premise of capitalism. I, I mean, I don't know if you've heard about oh, it, but send me a memo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like an RFD uh, on that, like. Yeah, my, my, my wife works in an organization that one of the things they do is focus on CEO pay, CEO pay to motivate, uh, like, uh, you know, outcomes, but also to motivate, like, ESG and environmental stuff and, and diversity and inclusion. So, uh, you know, they, they feel like CEOs kind of do what they're paid to do. And I think that's variously true for other folks. I don't, I don't know that, how ubiquitous that is in in engineering or in Silicon Valley. I think there are a lot of other incentives that people, that motivate people pretty strongly. I think there are incentives that motivate people way more strongly. I mean, I think it's like, it is a, certainly speaking for me personally, it, 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 I mean, yeah, it's like currency is great. Money's great. But 
it, there are other, I mean, it is way more important for me to do something that is useful to other people, that is useful to, that is something that is useful to my peers, that is useful to customers, something like that. That I just get way more motivation about that, out of that than. In, in your career, have you ever had someone like put an incentive structure in place that, that had you not like fundamentally change behavior, but maybe kind of change priorities in yes. some way? Um, sure. Because after the acquisition, when Samsung acquired Joyent, they put in place a retention package that was a three year long retention package that was all, uh, it, it was backloaded, which I've used an active, like I view backloading any kind of incentive package as a very interesting kind of confession, which is like, look, this place kind of sucks. And the longer you're here, the more you're going to realize that. So I've actually got to pay you way more in these out years when you're going to be like in excruciating pain in order to compensate you for that. I mean, I just feel like the backloading, that kind of retention, I think like in, in retention itself is kind of peculiar, you know? Well, well and what it sounds like the, the behavior it motivated was not. That's great. right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, for gotcha. sure. No, no. I mean, it's important behavior, I guess. In some yeah, cases. I mean, it, it, and it's actually in many ways was clarifying because like the most miserable year of my career was also the most lucrative. So yeah. it's like it definitely and, and whereas like, OK, I feel like a responsibility to like my family to stay, but I'm like, I'm definitely not happy. And so, yeah, it, it did motivate me to do something that I wouldn't otherwise. And I was like disgusted by myself about it. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel, You're it fine. did not feel good. We're, we don't feel that way about you. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why would you say that unless you did feel that way about me? <laughs> why would you volunteer that? I mean, obviously you feel that way about me or you wouldn't have volunteered well, it. Well, I mean, the best part of selling out is the money. <laughs> my friend loves to say. Um, I, I feel bad. Enough. I, I'd love to hear from other folks. Like if there were, if there were things like incentives that, that change behavior in, in other ways, you know, I, I'm now I'm uh, I'm thinking back to like my early days at Sun Brian when Mike would Mike and you would like take the count of bugs that I had fixed and use this as like weapons to other to like compare to other groups of folks and actually that was usually motivating for me to think like I I would sit there you know watching Law and Order endlessly on the weekends like fixing random <laughs> MDB bugs because I was like fired up to like pad that count and like bugs are not like a great metric or whatever. You know, I, but, it uh, is funny. I thought of exactly that today, actually, <laughs> because as I was thinking about like other ways in which engineers have been incentivized, because you could go in and say, like, look, we're going to pay you by, by the bug fix or we're going to pay you by the line of code. It's just very easy to see how this becomes immediately perverse or actually mm. another example from Sun. Sun, do you remember the patent rewards? Oh, Oh yeah, no, that totally, that definitely changed our behavior for sure. That did change behavior, uh, and in fact, I still uh, do. I still have. I think I still have at least one piece of furniture that was paid for with a with a with a patent <laughs> bounty. I don't know that I. So, we, so, so some would pay us. Yeah. When we initially kind of filed a disclosure, there were different compensation structures, but it was something fairly lucrative, like five hundred bucks for basically filling in a web form. That's right. And then, and then, like a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks for actually getting the patent filed, right? And then a piece of wood when you got it granted. Yeah, and they changed that so because the the, the granting process could take so long. So, do you, 
it actually, and I think this might have even happened before you joined, it used to be that they had this philosophy of like, talk about first incentives. Well, um, you know, the patent process takes a long, you really want to, you want to front load the incentive and you really want to incentivize people to file the invention disclosure, which is the internal disclosure inside of Sun before you get lawyers involved. And so that was, so that was like $2,000 for the invention for like the web form. And then it was like $500 for the patent granted. So you can imagine what might've happened. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. People, I mean, and it's like, and I actually didn't, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't do this certainly, but I discovered this when I, we had an issue on Jurassic and this guy had this world readable directory of all of the disclosures he'd filed. And he, he'd filed like 300 disclosures. And it was disclosures for like things like, you know, lavatory in hover car. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where he's got, and I mean, he would have these event disclosures. And there's a question in the disclosure of like, have you reduced this to practice? Which is like such a terrible phrase. Like the, it's like, this is re- reduced to practice. And of course, the answer for all of these things, like no, none of the la- none of the hover car laboratories have been reduced to practice. All of these things have just been like shit he dreamed up and was getting like you know a decent amount of money for. So yeah, yeah they, they, that's why they changed it. <laughs> I mean, it was a different era too, right? As we talked about two weeks ago when we were talking about uh, RIM and BlackBerry, where like these plat- patent trolls would pop up and sue you over something that kind of never really worked for them, but. Uh, you know, good enough. Yeah, I mean, it, that's true. Like, Sun wanted a big por- patent portfolio, and they kind of got it as a result. Um, but they definitely had to fine tune the incentives. And I was definitely thinking about what you're referring to is we had a an office that was not very productive, and it, when we, when everyone was working at a direct physical site, and what we showed was that you you personally, as a new engineer at Sun had fixed more bugs in the previous, whatever it was, six months than the entire office, like by far. I mean, it was not, it's not at all close. It's, I didn't realize that you were actually changing your behavior as a result of that. That's kind of interesting. I don't think, I mean, I don't think I was, you know, radically, like, these were things I wanted to do anyway, by and large, like I was fired up to do it. But like, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like any kind of pat on the head, right? Like when, when you give people attaboys or you give people encouragement, like usually that turns into them doing more of the same thing. I mean, which is also why encouragement and praise need to be carefully thought about. I, I had a funny one. This is a, a little bit, uh, I, I hope this is not too far out of bounds, but I, one time Uh-oh. we had these two engineers. No, 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 nothing to do with you. We had, we had two, I, just, I, I, I think this is topical. So we had two engineers who, you know, over Christmas, like stayed around, fixed some problem. Uh, this one, I'm CTO Delphix and, um, and the CEO, you know, at an all hands kind of recognized these two, gave them some award. I think it was like a patent, a stock grant, pardon me, um, and really called them out. And I had an engineer approach me a week later and she was like, you know, I just worked really hard beforehand and did everything I could to make sure we didn't have these kinds of problems. Uh, and so are yeah. you saying like you want me to skip Christmas? And so – and – or and are you saying that you like want me to like not actually like yeah. why would I fix the foundation when I can be a hero because the the building is yeah, yeah. And so it, it was it was an interesting one right because it, it made me think about 
And I'm not sure like there was a clearly right answer in that circumstance, but it did make me think a lot about like what you praise in public, like what you praise in public to get other people to see those kinds of effects and what you praise in private because, you know, you appreciate the work, but don't necessarily want that to be set as the the standard of the pattern. Like, like the, like the V nodes as the metric for uh, promoting someone to staff engineer. Yeah. Right. Like once you do that publicly, you raise the bar and make it hard for everyone else. Whereas if you tell them privately, this was terrific work and we really appreciate it. And the messaging publicly might be different. You know, it's, it sets different kinds of incentives and expectations. Okay. That's interesting. Pri- private versus public. Also, what about if, would she have felt the same way if the praise had been public, but there'd been no compensation associated with it? Yeah. My, I think that might've changed things as well, right? Like appreciating I, I, someone's sacrifice without necessarily saying that there was like a cash prize or what, or stock or whatever right. was attached to it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how because I feel I, I do one of the things I definitely wonder, because certainly, and those of you ex Googlers can kind of kind of chime in on this, but I feel like part of the big problem is that all of this stuff is tied to comp. So it's not just like, you know, something that the kind of the culture values, but it's all like there's a direct pass through to compensation. And that then you you start to compensation feels zero sum. If it, it, you know, if you're praised in an all hands and I'm not, I just feel like I'm less likely to be embittered by that <laughs> than if, you know, you're compensated and I'm not. I feel it's like easier to be like, wait a minute, like there's a pie. It's finite. You just got a slice of pie. I, you just got a chicken sandwich that I can't get. But makes it up. <laughs> yes. Zero sum sandwiches. Yes. But I wonder, no, like, that's how, a good point. Like, like how much of that is, is and like how much of it also, I feel like this is this peril of. I mean, I, the bug example that occurred to me as well, because we did kind of open Pandora's box there a little bit in that we or we, we cracked it open. I'd like to believe that we shut it quickly after that. But the, it, I mean, in many ways, it was confirming something that we already, confirming is the wrong word. It was, it was showing quantitatively something that felt very true qualitatively. Cool. And, and for those listening, yes, this made me a lot of friends at that office. <laughs> Well, part of the thing that was di- was dismaying about that it was came in through an uh, kind of an acquisition. We had a we had a VP that liked to we had a VP that really liked to hire people. That was like the oh, actually talk about reverse incentives. There, that's a good one. Yeah, totally. Right, the, size the, of your size, size of, of your, your org. Yeah, and he was all about the size of his org. Like that was how he, and I think this is way, the way a lot of people measure themselves. And so he went and like, there was a company that was basically going to downsize a bunch of people and he went and hired them all with very, I mean, in a total, like no huddle kind of fashion. And it was kind of, we had to take them all or none of them. And this is in the late nineties or two thousands when it's like, you know, we can't find people anywhere. And so we ended up with a bunch of people that were not people we should have hired is what it boiled down to. And in part because of this, of this perverse incentive that, that he was incentivized to build his org instead of actually doing the right thing. Yeah. I think it also gets to like why people do things though. I mean, it's just like, just like, like, like what makes people feel good about the work they're doing and where do you drive that satisfaction from? And I think if you make that too extrinsically motivated too much of the time, people get strung out on it. Yeah. But I think a lot of what we're talking about is that, 
I still extrinsic motivation, right? Like even when you're saying that you like, and, and I like, I, I share this feeling that I like doing things that my colleagues appreciate, that other people appreciate, right? Like I like building some random crate and seeing someone consume it that I've never seen before, right? The, I, I, I mean, I think those are extrinsic, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there is oh, yeah, also yeah. This, uh, this, you know, I like the, the satisfaction of a job well done, um, you know, and like doing something beautiful, but I like, I'll, I'll readily confess that I'm like much more extrinsically motivated. I mean, this will come as no surprise to you as I show like every scrap of code I've ever written when I was in my twenties to you or whatever, <laughs> right. like requiring a firm pat on the head. <laughs> That's that you're being too hard on yourself, but no, I, <laughs> in that you're right. I mean, that even where we say there's intrinsic motivation and there is, it is like we have a colleague. I mean, I hold all of our colleagues in very high regard, but we hold a colleague whose highest praise in my experience is slick. Like that's slick. And I, <laughs> and yeah, like I find like those are like serious Scooby Snacks. Like you say, you know, he calls something you did slick and it feels, yeah, it feels really good. But it feels good in part because it, do, it feels like that's, it feels deep. You know what I mean? It feels earned. It doesn't feel like it's not just given out for anything. It is not That's cheapened. Right. And it's not cheapened in part because it has no, it, it, there's nothing monetary associated with it. You know, he's, he, he is under no obligation to issue a certain number of slicks per quarter. You know, we, he's not stack ranking the organization, figuring out how he can also give out an infinite number of slicks. You know, I mean, there's no, no nothing. Well, except for they do kind of devalue, right? You do get sort of like uh, it, it, slip, it, it, slick inflation. <laughs> slick inflation, now that I say that, would actually be pretty. Now, I would have to move to something else. It's true. It would, it would be devalued. That is true. Right. Uh, it did maybe, uh, you know, I don't know if you had this feeling, Brian, because I, I know when you left Sun, you were VP of Eng and then CTO. Uh, and, you know, I, I had been a uh, like a manager and then a, a CTO and then later CEO and then now nothing. Uh, but it did make me think a lot about um, about like about praise, right? And it changes. It's weird. It's weird how the things you say, both positive and negative, cast a much longer shadow. And it and it was um, you know I was working for a CEO once who was very stingy with praise. Yeah. And um, and it, and uh, I remember just thinking and, and saying to him at one point, you know, this is the the cheapest thing. That you have to give out, and, and it and it, is, it actually yeah. matters so much. It matters so much. I agree with that. Yeah. I, um, I, I, so you know, did I tell you when I got religion on this? When we um, were so th- you and I were together at an Oregon side of time, and we had a bunch of uh, uh, younger engineers, a couple of younger engineers, and sun is collapsing. It's the fall of Psycon. You and, you and I are running to the roof with our with all of our things, waiting to get helicoptered out, and. Uh, I remember I was with three of the most junior engineers, one of whom still works with today. Um, and I was like, look, you know, hey, I'm leaving. I just wanted to tell you, you know, you three did a, like a great job. And I, they, they were like, oh, good. Okay. Okay. That's really good to know. I'm like, what? what? Like, well, we just like, I mean, we kind of assumed we were doing a good job because, you know, no one told us we were doing a bad job, but. Okay, that's good to know. We were doing a good job. They were kind of like, oh my God, did we screw up? I screwed up. I felt like I screwed up. I did not give you nearly enough. And so my big belief is like, if you are, and, and you, you know, folks that have worked at Oxide have probably heard me say this. If you tell some, me something positive about someone else, I'll be like, tell them that. Make sure they know that. 
And I mean, praise shouldn't be disingenuous, but like, don't be stingy with it. If you've got, if no. you're, if you're feeling something positive about someone else, say it for sure. I, I mean, I, I have become much more a fan of praise and not once has someone, have I said, you know, you did a great job on this, or I really appreciate this and had the person say, well, you know, shove it. Like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> exactly. That makes nothing to me. Yeah. Really? Exactly. And it's, and it's weird how just, you know, these, these kind words can mean so much to our colleagues or, you know, to open source maintainers or whomever, because like people often don't go out of the way to, to give that praise. And it's a lot easier to give negative feedback. Well, you also don't know. You're like, Oh, okay, good. Thank God. That is good. I wasn't sure. Like, I don't know. Are people using this? Was this a good idea? Is this working? Yeah. You know, you just don't necessarily know. Um, Satnam, you had your, your hand up and then Ken, you were joining us as well. Uh, I think I mean, I've been thinking what you've been saying about incentives and money. And I think of all my academic colleagues who clearly are not motivated by money, <laughs> but yet they do great work. And so what is it there going on there? And I think part of that is you want the respect of your peers, right? And if you can create systems where that becomes a currency other than just you know, your title and how much money you're paid, I think that would be like a kind of a better world. Anyway, I'm a little bit what I was thinking about giving people praise. Like, so the academic community has got all these prizes and awards for academics and uh, uh, students and postdocs and so on. So, but, but I think building systems where we have respect, you, you can somehow trade respect rather than do, uh, dollars and maybe perhaps something to be learned from the academic community for that. Because that's something I think that works very well. Where yeah. We don't care about their level. They don't, no one cares if you're an assistant professor or a full professor, and you and your salary is, you know, is is very low compared to what you could be earning in industry. So it's not all about money. I think how how you are accepted and how you feel think your peers accept you and what they think of you. For a lot of us, I know for me, that's a very important and powerful thing. Super powerful. I know that's a very good point, and I feel like. I feel one of the challenges that that you know we have in and I think academia also suffers from this a bit is can I do I cheapen myself if I praise your work if I if I praise your work am I you know am I saying that you that that you are my intellectual superior in, in, you know in, in in academia and you you really want to not get kind of caught up in that in that hierarchy and know that you can safely praise someone else and not worry about it cheapening yourself. But yeah, you're right about that. It's really academics are not motivated by money, clearly, because um, they could make a lot more elsewhere. Are academics, uh, how content are academics in your experience? Uh, um, yeah, so, I mean, I've just been off some threads. I, I, there's this one maddening thread on Twitter where someone said, he's an academic, and he said, how much money would a company have to pay you to make you leave academia? Which kind of like ticked me off. I mean, I, I, I wrote a kind of a oh. narky reply because it was all, it was written on the assumption that I am doing a good thing as an academic and I could sell my soul and go to industry and therefore would do bad things, but at least I'm being paid money to compensate for it. So I think I, I do come across a few academics that feel very unhappy about what they're earning, but only when, They've just had to teach a giant class. Or... <laughs> Te teaching is really hard. Well, I mean, I know tons of. I mean, I used to be an academic. Uh, you know, clearly, I wasn't doing it. From, I had more. I was very motivated, very driven. I worked the hardest I worked in my life was as a lowly paid ac academic. So clearly, something going in there other than the the money. I think a lot of them are 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 very content, but they will complain uh, as is, uh, as as I want about all the things that, that are. 
uh, that are not good. And you know, in, in computer, I mean, uh, most people's academics don't have a choice, right? We chose, like my sister is an academic in English literature. She's a professor at university. That she, she can't go and work for Google, right, with her qualifications. Most of our friends who are academics can, if they wanted to, right? They have that option. They can vote with their feet. And they don't, right? They stay as a, a, academics. So I think a lot of them are very content. Very content. Yeah, interesting. Well, and I feel like teaching is one of these things that you also have to be, I mean, teaching obviously a big part of academia and it's talk about like a very distant reward. And I know, I mean, you know, we should all go back and thank the teachers that had the most impact on us because I don't think I hear that frequently enough. Uh, I, I, let's go to Ken and then to Ian. Ken, I think you joined the earlier. Yeah, hi, can you hear? Yep, we can hear you. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I think one of the things so it is around visibility. So like a lot of bug work in general and um, fixing and making systems more resilient, largely if you do it by yourself, tends to go unnoticed or be invisible unless you actively try to make it more visible. Uh, and one of the things I've noticed, uh, I've been developing uh, chaos engineering program um, from the ground up and it's it's uh, a you can have it be a team or a person that enables kind of the visibility in an organization to go to, to sort of fan out to make that work a lot hey more. ken we're kind of losing you i think that's we get <laughs> I mean we blame Twitter spaces of course. And of course also Adam, this could be the quirk where the recording is fine. Oh yeah, I'll check that. I'll, I'll check that. Well, yeah, yeah, please there... continue, Ken. Okay. So I found um chaos experience just being a good way to put it in front of to put like debugging the systems in a way that's in front of the eyes of both like uh, Ken, sorry, I got to cut you off. The the I, I think you're unintelligible both to us and the <laughs> recording. Sorry. Although it makes that is better because we have had this failure mode where the we are unintelligible to one another, but then totally intelligible to the recording. And if you go back and listen to the recording, we sound like we're having a stroke on this. <laughs> so, Ken, I think what you're saying, I'm I'm getting kind of like every third or fourth syllable about how you make bug fixing more visible in an organization. And I think that there are some actually interesting ways to go do that and, and to make, you know, how do you kind of uplift this? I mean, I do feel, Adam, like one of the things that we do try to do is you got to make a big deal out of things that are really hard, but don't look like a big deal. And bug, bug fixing is one of those things. It's really hard, but it, it, you know, great. Like the system now works as well as I thought it worked before you did any of this. Like, you, and I think it's incumbent upon an organization to really encourage that. But it, 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 it's not easy. I, the, Ian? Yeah, I would say to the uh, uh, academic uh, line of argument, um, in, in terms of computer science academics, I think a lot of people churn out of that as a career path um, significantly earlier in their journey now than they did, say, uh, even uh, like 20 years ago or something, right? So a lot of people, year one, year two of their PhDs, or if they do complete a PhD, will churn out into industry at this stage because uh, there's pretty significant financial incentives to do so, as well as um, 
the the difference in the amount of freedom they get to pursue the work that they want to do has slimmed over the years, whereby industry is offering some pretty uh, uh, free-form positions whereby you can pursue the kind of research that you want to do and publish it in public. So um, a lot of people, I, I, I don't, uh, yeah, I think that if you are looking at people who are currently lecturers, they've already filtered out a lot of people <laughs> at that point in the, you know, four plus years of training that go up to that point. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, actually, for whatever it's worth, for me personally, Adam, I feel like you also like thought you were going to go in academic. Yeah, that was pretty convinced. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you, are you still in the mode that I felt you were in for several decades where you still believe that? Um. No, I mean, I know that I'm too old, if that's, if that's, okay. if that's the Oh, no, no, no. But then, okay, this is like a new development. I don't mean to make too big of a deal. <laughs> but this is like, uh, well, I, I feel this is like one of you, like you, you had like a, a, there was an alternate timeline where. Yes. Right. I feel, I feel like there have been, uh, I mean, like even as recently as like maybe 2015 or 16, I thought about, you know, seeing if I could join Phil on his talk adventures uh, down at Stanford and things like that. No, for sure. And you had not yet used up your NCAA athletic eligibility for ultimate. <laughs> that was that was a factor. I will. Right. I mean, that was part of the that was part of like that particular ultimate timeline, if I recall correctly. Uh, uh, absolutely, that I would be like the old man on a on a frisbee team of twenty one year olds, thinking that I could school them, but actually just being run around. <laughs> Wait, but but playing dirtier than they'd be willing to play, and oh, throwing your visor much dirt. more frequently. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> calling way more travels for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, but so, you, but so that at some point you realize, like, okay, I don't think I'm going to. Well, I, mean, I think how, how about this? you know? I, I think I say that I'm like I'm actually not totally convinced the dream is dead for me either. I, you know, I, I was I was at my uh, my older son's back to school night, and his physics and computer science teacher, same guy, uh, went to MIT. Um, you know, in the nineties, um, worked in industry for a while, uh, hated it. And has been teaching at, uh, at the high school for 15, 20 years. And he made it sound so romantic, um, that, that it sort of like breathed on those embers a little bit because he clearly loves it and the kids love him. And I think oh, there is, God, that's there great. is something that, you know, I, I love teaching and like, I get a lot of it, uh, in you know, a lot of those same, uh, benefits, from like working with colleagues and mentoring colleagues and, and over the years, but there, there is something uh, that continues to be very romantic about, you know, teaching probably not in high school, but teaching in college. It's very, it's potentially very high impact. I mean, you can do, you can really affect people's lives. You can, you can yeah. change the direction of their lives. And well, it's great. I mean, conversely, like pull, pulling those, uh, you know, academics out of academia into industrial research conversely feels also like it has a big impact. Like you're, you're underserving, you know, you're, you're kind of eating the seed corn, like you're underserving those youth. So I think it's, I think it's kind of complicated. Who's, who are we eating? Am I, are we seed corn eaters? Mm, in this, that's in a this good metaphor? question. No, I would say. Are we just bring right. the food stocks for future generations in this metaphor? I'm trying to. Keep uh, I think like the folks who, who tempt uh, great, um, great teachers and professors into industri industrial research uh, so that they don't have to teach anymore. Yeah, a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So I'll tell you the thing that turned me off about academia, that is still a bit of a turnoff about it's still a turnoff about academia for sure, is the it, the the novophilia that that everything only the things that are new have merit. And it felt like the there were it was few and far between the the academic papers that 
I could see myself writing with the ones that were actually going into impl- implementation details didn't matter. didn't felt like them. It, did, it didn't feel like they mattered anyway in the, um, and this was part of the reason I love the, the, the late Johan Lidke has got terrific papers because the implementation really mattered in those papers. I don't know if you've ever read any, like, you know, no, you read, it's really good stuff. But then I, and, and I kind of fell in love with those. And then you realize like, wait a minute, this is a sliver of the, and this is like when we went to AAT Puck, Adam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we went to, oh, we're such a bunch of jokers where we went to this conference on debugging. And I'm like, we are going to the, the cathedral of academia. Like this is the, this is the, the, the mecca for academia because there can be no higher calling in academic computer science than working on debugging. And then we arrive there and realize that this whole community feels like they are like, like they're boat people. Like they are adrift. Like no one will take them. I mean, they're just like. Yeah. Pariahs. And I, I don't pariahs. think that conference happened again. Yeah. Right. And it, here we thought the conference happened infrequently because it was like the Olympics. It was like, you can't have the Olympics every year. Or you cheapen it. And it's like, no, we can't like get a venue most years. Like we can't get. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Dan, you had your, your hand up. Sure. Uh, first, a little side comment about industrial research. I'm going to take um, some exception to what Adam said. I mean, look, look at Bell Labs. They did Unix, C, the transistor, the laser. I mean, all of that stuff was side effects of industrial research, and it really has changed the world. Um, well, hold on, Dan. Just to be clear, like, I, I'm not anti-industrial research. Uh, I'm just saying they're, they're kind of two sides of the coin. That, oh, that sure. if, you're, if you're taking someone out of academic research where they're you know, inspiring young minds potentially and bring them into a different context, like it's not purely you – know, there, there's, there's, there's cost-benefit in each. That's, that's my only point, not sure. I, I'm, I'm a I'm Bell right. Labs denier. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. No, no, Why I, would he I say know, he's a Bell Labs denier unless he's a Bell Labs denier? I mean, obviously. The guy no, no, I, 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 think, I think it's you just do your own research. more of a back and forth there, right? I mean, yeah. you know, people will jump between industry and academia. And, you know, like the Bell Labs folks would talk to people in academia all the time. And they would go down to Princeton and teach classes and blah, 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 blah. Um, but I wanted to touch on the uh, engineering incentive thing. So this all kind of kicked off, as near as I could tell with this uh, tweet about a Reddit comment. And I don't know who wrote that, the, the original Reddit comment or what the context there was, but it was definitely a little bit misleading about the specifics of Google. So Google's big thing wasn't so much like you have to launch, it was you have to demonstrate impact. And the easiest mm. way to do that was to launch something, for mm. sure. And this, I think, is actually really, this speaks to this idea of like, well, how do you incentivize maintenance work? it is very difficult to demonstrate the impact of doing some maintenance, right? Hmm. So there's, there's this great novel by Bulgakov called The Master and Margarita. And it, long story short, very, very interesting novel. I highly recommend reading it. The sort of synopsis of the story is the devil comes to Soviet Moscow and has his grand ball in the 1920s. And the first order of business is to acquire an apartment. And he does that by basically killing somebody. And the way that this guy died is this woman spills some oil on some trolley tracks. This guy is walking out of a park after almost convincing Satan that he doesn't exist. He slips on the oil and he gets decapitated by the trolley. All right. Now, like, why do I think this is relevant? Because if somebody could have just like bumped into this person and prevented the oil from spilling, then the guy wouldn't have died. And then Satan couldn't have had his grand ball in the novel. And then the world would have been deprived of this literary masterwork. Um, the point being that you might do some, you might make some very small change just during the course of one's day-to-day work, 
get that committed. And then that salt that prevents a major outage six months or a year or five years down the road. You really have no way of knowing that, yeah. let yeah. alone quantifying it. And this is the master and margarita. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah right. I mean, it, the cat, highly recommended. Well, and I mean, just like actually, I mean, the, the value of like having an impact on a student. It's also, you don't know kind of years from now. And so, yeah. So Dan, how do you, how do you square that? Because I mean, we obviously, we know that so much of that work has an enormous impact and we want to encourage it. I mean, how do we, uh, how do you do it? I think that you have to make maintenance work an explicit thing that people like in, in organizations where there's a perf style evaluation, you have to make maintenance work an explicit thing that is rewarded. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you have to be willing to say like, we will promote somebody for doing maintenance. And if you can demonstrate that you have somehow improved the code quality of, you know, a library or whatever, you're going to get a promotion out of that. Which I can be problematic. I mean, I, I certainly it was a really, so at Sun, there was this distinguished engineer rank that was this basically country club that voted on its own membership. It was kind of outside of the normal promotion process. And it was a huge and contentious deal when they, the first field engineer became a DE and it brought out the absolute positive worst in people. Um, and, it, and for someone who was like indisputably technically qualified, but spent their life customer facing, which a lot of us would view as like very, very important, but it was really, there are a lot of people that don't believe that that's important. And that's a shame. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that comes down to the culture that you're in and what you reward. So like, I love your example, Dan. I think it's even more important that you do it and show people and talk about it, even that you write it down a priori. Right, like you can write down all you want, but if people don't get promoted for these things, then you know that it sort of doesn't matter. But if you're yeah. if you're promoting folks or rewarding folks or recognizing folks, and those are the accomplished, then then people drift to them. I mean, there's there's another side of it where, um, you know, I, I've had, um, you know, at, at a previous role, I had someone working on our team um, come to me and say, "Well, what kinds of things can I need to do for the next round?" Because it says that. You know, I, you know, I need to basically what we were looking for in this organization is folks who could help us see around corners and help us like, you know, be broader. Um, like we needed just more people being more thoughtful rather than just doing what they were told. And, you know, this guy came and asked, how can I do right. that thing? So I listen, like, well, I'm just coming to you to understand. I'm asking you to tell me how I should see around corners. Like, I don't know. So it was sort of a tough thing, and, and he was yeah, doing great tough. work, but it did sort of top him out in the organization. There was sort of a point at which we need we needed the independent thought and in, independent operation and leadership. Yeah, interesting. But it was like you also like you don't necessarily want everybody seeing around corners. I mean, you don't want it like you know. I mean, sometimes you can overly enshrine some of that kind of strategic thinking. Absolutely. And then discourage someone who's like, well, actually, no, I'm not going to go, you know, help this customer out or go debug this problem. That's right. I want to see around corners. That, that's right. I mean, it sort of had to do well, with where did we feel short? You know, that but, we tried to align our incentives and yeah. based on where we felt shorthanded. So here, here's a concrete example of what I was referring to. And I'm going to speak to this in, in generalities because I don't feel super comfortable talking about the specifics. But there was a team at Google that had a big maintenance problem. They were working with an upstream open source component. 
and you know with a high rate of change and pulling in those changes and merging google specific changes back well not specific but just google authored changes back upstream was a big problem mm -hmm. and one night i was happened to be eating dinner with a couple of the senior engineers from that team and i said look why don't you take like four people and say you have a year to figure this out, get as many of our internal patches as possible upstreamed and figure out a more streamlined process. And at the end of the year, you'll all, you will all get promoted. And it was like, I had just suggested, you know, kicking a puppy or something. I mean, you know, like <laughs> the, the other folks around the table just kind of looked at me like, like I had said, you know, something very offensive. It was, and, and huh. it was clear that wasn't going to fly, but to me, it seemed like a pretty decent idea. Interesting. And you got like, hey, look, everyone knows you've got this problem. This problem is like well known. Everyone knows this is an important problem. I'm just proposing a way for you to use the extant incentivization structures to solve the problem. Like, it feels well, very reasonable. I, I mean, as another former Googler, right? Like, there, there's periodically these tweets that go around that are like, hey, senior folks in, in engineering, like, talk about your times where you did something that, that caused a major problem so that the new folks when they inevitably do something that takes down production it's not you know completely up foreign and i usually describe a case where i made a typo in a regex and it got deployed to all of google and ended up taking out two whole clusters for multiple days um, and clusters in the sense are not small no no we're talking order like tens of thousands of machines yeah. um good job and man. <laughs> and but the thing is is like coming back to the impact side uh while i while i offer that as an example of like where i took down production and it wasn't a big deal the other side was it actually served as a way as like this way of demonstrating how much impact there was behind yeah. the software i worked on such yeah. that the postmortem of why did this happen and how could we prevent it in the future actually pro finally provided a path for folks on my team to be promoted Interesting. Yeah, interesting. You were able to provide some visibility into like, hey, this is why this stuff is really important. And presumably there were a, a bunch of the things, and I, Rick, I imagine this came out in the postmortem, some of the, I would presume some of the infrastructure that you could deploy to prevent this kind of thing happening is probably something that people wanted to build and felt like they couldn't because they didn't have enough visibility. Yeah, it, I mean, ultimately, it, for that specific one, it gave enough air cover to go out and figure out what a proper plan would be to make this more sustainable. And it turned out to be a, a seven year long plan to eliminate a core piece of the, the Google uh, server software stack and, and infrastructure stack and replace it with a, a, an alternative. And, you know, like there are people who got their promotions off of a project that I started that I never met. Um, okay. So the plan, okay. Seven year long plan. I've got some follow up questions. Was that a seven year long plan at the outset? Is no, this like no, okay. it's just the realities of the complexity right. of it, it was a core piece of the infrastructure that nobody quite understood how it was interacted with from everywhere. And so everyone was afraid of changing it. So right. you, you end up with this in like, you know, all sorts of organizations. There's there's also that XKCD comic of like, here's the giant tech stack and here's the one component that's written by this person in Nebraska, right? Yeah. Like it's the same thing, except that you don't necessarily know where that component is or who else re relying on it. So making those changes, like it's, it's hard to understand what the impact is, but you also run into fear around making changes to things that you suspect have a lot of impact. So you, you, you know, there, there becomes this, we don't want to disrupt things too much 
so working on a potentially impactful project can also be held back from fear of causing too much breakage. Totally. Um, well, so, so, but in Rick, there's another interesting thing there that is, you know, not to bag on Google too much, because it's all the fact that Google had a culture, if not like the, the, the metrics around doing the postmortem. Allow, I mean, it, because th there would be other companies that would not do a deep understanding of why that failure happened. And they would just punish those involved and move on. But to Google's credit, like it sounds like, really want to understand why this failure happened. Dig deep, get a, get a full rigorous postmortem. Because I do feel like that's another way to kind of enshrine the importance of some of this unseen infrastructure is to make sure that failures themselves are really important to fully understand. You make it sound glamorous. Um, <laughs> the, the reality of the situation was was definitely much more having a culture of writing postmortems meant that I I could actually stand up and say we should write a postmortem for this, and that yes. I still had to take on that like recognize that that was important and take on the role of actually writing it and writing yeah. down things that I knew were going to be inflammatory to a lot of folks and sending it out to fairly senior folks so that they saw the problems that were actually there. So yeah. it, it was partly that the culture gave enough ways to, to, that you could do it, but you were still taking somewhat of a risk of, of actually going through with the process. And I mean, that's not like we're getting a little off topic, but it was like, there are a lot of incentives and, and disincentives throughout the company culture and you have to be able to pick and choose like which incentives you're going to follow um, and which disincentives you're going to ignore to be able to actually accomplish something and be able to use that as demonstration for, you know, longer term incentives. Um, it, it just, it becomes a, a, its own like muddled mess of <laughs> trying to navigate the incentives. Yeah, that's interesting. And then what's interesting, like also like what are the incentives to change the way things are incentivized? Because I do feel that you also have this very much the, the, this kind of uh, the, this confirmation bias for those that do well in a particular system reward that so that they want to they they want to keep that. I mean, Sotnam, to go to your academic point, those that came up through the system of tenure are going to be loath to give that kind of job security out without people going to the same things that they went through. And so how do you kind of incentivize people to improve the system? I think it's another one that's, that's pretty thorny. I'm not sure good answer to that one. Yeah, you've probably seen this, Brian, in like executive compensation where, uh, you know, boards oh, of directors just want to kind of, all these executives pay go up and up and up. And this is why one of the, you know, the ratio between the CEO and the average employee has, has increased dramatically. But some of this is just belie believing in the system of incentive and going around the table and, and rewarding each other. It does seem to be that. I mean, and, and you have these things that have got nothing to do with an executive's performance that, that form a huge amount of their compensation. And yeah, it, it does seem to me that you are uh, the, some of these comp committees, I do not understand why you got the, the kind of the way they operate. I, and I guess it's the, it, it's the belief that the executives are creating heaven and earth underneath them, which is not always the case. Absolutely. But it's the, it's other executives making those kinds of decisions. <laughs> so kind of buying into that cargo cult.
<laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, Christopher, you're trying to get in here. Hey there. So um, I, I've had the uh, academic experience for about 20 years uh, into my late 40s. Um, and uh, uh, just about um, incentivizing young people. Um, we took on a lot of uh, summer students and uh, summer interns and uh, co-op interns. Uh, the key there was getting the team of experienced people together, uh, writing out on the whiteboard all the, the nagging little things that we wanted to do and sorting them into sort of um, short three-week, easy-to-do topics, and then uh, longer three-month-ish, a uh, little more challenging topics, and, and divvying them up so that incoming youngsters would have <clears throat> what we call the quick win, that was the three-week project that could be done uh, after a week of intensive training and, and uh, some, a, a bit of hand-holding, and then putting them on that three-month longer project. And um, the, the point of that is incentivi incentivization is that the win itself is the incentive. And to give them that early win was key. Now, I'm uh, in my late 50s now. <laughs> And uh, I left academia. I I put uh, I I put twelve PhDs out on the market, and that's way more than my uh, optimal reproduction number. Uh, <laughs> so and and half women, half men. So that's great. Hey, that's there you go. Uh, so now I'm working uh, incidentally with a bunch of um, ex Bell Labs guys at Ericsson. Um, and uh, I'm no longer I no longer have to play the smartest guy in the room. Mm, I'm not. It's very liberating to not be the smartest person in the room. I found speaking as the person who is who is emphatically not is very yeah. It's and it would that's okay. So that's another interesting. I mean, you got, you raise a bunch of interesting points in there. Uh, I I do feel that there's a danger when people are vying to be the smartest person in the room. That can be a that can that particular incentive can get very toxic very quickly. Um, where you are now like, I am incentivized to now actually like shit on your idea so I can make sure that you're not the smartest person in this particular room. Uh, and, and for the, one of the clues of why I left academia was uh, I was uh, working at the National University of Singapore for six years. Uh, they capped my salary payable to software guys uh, to a huh. point where I couldn't recruit and so I could I could get all this grant money, no problem. But they wouldn't let me spend it uh, at a level to recruit the, the kind of people I needed. So I had to set up my operations such that I had to work exclusively with trainees, uh, and I had to adapt to that. Huh, and, uh, that was that was not. Uh, <laughs> I, as I said, I got tired of being the smartest guy in the room after six years of that. And so the other thing you mentioned I thought was interesting was the, I mean, certainly the, the finding the, the quick win, which I definitely think is important. I think that you guys got to find that like that quick win and then you need like, what's the medium sized win behind it. So you're not going from the quick win to like, okay, great. Now jump in the deep end and, and struggle. Uh, yep. You got to kind of find that. And, but I always believe that you should give interns the, the projects that are, really exciting that no one has the time to really go into. Um, 
I, I've always felt that was a lot more interesting than giving them, which sounds like you're kind of those three month projects that are more speculative in nature. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is great because I think it, 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 it generates a much more, I don't know, Adam, I mean, you did nope, the, the, for sure. I mean, and I, I did the same thing after it had been done to me. Uh, and, and I agree. I think it's more interesting time and you have everyone excited about it, right? You sit down at the lunch table, you tell people what you're working on. And a lot of people have spent their spare time thinking about it so they can offer useful mentorship as opposed to slogging your way through some, some early bug. Um, it is interesting thinking about the psychology, both of ramping people up and, and incentives. It's got me thinking, Brian, um, I, I don't claim to know many psychological experiments, but my favorite is <laughs> they give uh, all, these, uh, all these monkeys cucumbers, totally happy eating cucumbers, <laughs> and then they give a bunch of other monkeys bananas. And the monkeys with cucumbers take the cucumbers and throw them at the, the, the researcher. And I feel like we get a, a fair bit of this with, <laughs> with like incentives and raises, right? The, the raise, totally. or like the, the job I had was fine. And now you gave a banana to this numbskull? Like, absolutely. This is why I think you're a cucumber. <laughs> you can take your cucumber and shove it. In- incoming cucumber. No, I definitely feel that's a, yeah, what a great. First of all, I was spending most of your recalling trying to figure out am I the monkey in this metaphor? Am I the cucumber? <laughs> Who am I? Where am I? I know that I know that I'm here. I just don't know. But no, I totally agree with you. And you can you can get people to care about things that they actually wouldn't otherwise care about because you've 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 introduced scarcity. And yeah. you know, it's like, I, you know, no, no, this group over here has this, and you don't. You kind of create all of these things that all of a sudden people start behaving in ways that you don't necessarily want them to behave. It's not actually conducive to it. It's not actually what you're trying to do. And same thing with baselines, right? Like we, how many, you know, prospective colleagues have we talked to who were too hooked on their megalocorp salary to get about, and in a lot of cases, they don't necessarily need that. And, 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 you know, need is a weird word to use with regard to money, but it means like it's not necessarily built into their lifestyle. They're not, you know, need to pay to support their family or whatever. Um, but it feels like taking something away. And I guess it is taking something away. But, you know, that same job offer before they had had that experience uh, would have been much more compelling. So, like, the the way we sort of bank what we've already got as the new baseline, um, both when it comes to, you know, compensation and title and all of these things, it becomes very hard to to step backwards. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I think other people should do this as well. One of the things that we ask people when they apply to Oxide is when were you happiest and why? And uh, it's never based on, you know, a promotion or compensation. <laughs> when yeah. we ask people when you were happiest and why, it is always based on, you know, I, I solved this problem that this other group needed or that I did this thing that was that had intrinsic satisfaction or brought satisfaction to others. It's It's gotten... Nothing to do with with the kind of the currency of the realm, or oh, I mean, I should say, I mean, every once in a while you do get people who are surprisingly reviewing in that regard, and you realize like probably not a fit. Um, but it is actually an important that we should all kind of figure out like, when was I happiest and why? When was I unhappiest and why? Where am I? Where are my true incentives? And I think figuring that out, and then figuring that out for other people, and kind of like trying to align all of that with what we want to actually go do while not creating, you know, bugs that get created spuriously so we can close them or <laughs> products that we create spuriously so we can kill them or what have you. Right. That's the trick. Um, Adam, I know we want to keep, we're, we're trying to, to end on time these days. 
How are we doing? We're doing great. Great. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, it's been a great discussion. It's been interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, we can um, agree that there are, are things that we want to avoid. I, you know, that we didn't mention the, the, the Cobras in India. I would love to know if that's a – you've heard of that, the, the – it, the, the British in India wanting to eradicate cobras, offering a bounty for cobras, and yeah. then people started breeding cobras. <laughs> of course. I didn't know that. That's such a great one. It's a great one. I just need to I – would, I, I would love to get like – I, I, it's kind of this like Malcolm Gladwell-esque knowledge. You know what I mean? Where it's like – God, that feels so great. Like, is that true? I hope yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I choose to believe that it's true. Because <laughs> it's, it's, that's true. Because I definitely want to drop that at you know, lots of occasions. Yeah, I mean, because it, it's And I think that there's a lot of cobra breeding that happens. And we want to avoid the cobra breeding when we incentivize engineers. Yeah. Man, it gets hard. It gets hard, especially as teams grow. And, you know, you, you lose touch with what is motivating people and, and who's not being praised sufficiently and who's being praised more than the rest of the company thinks or whatever it is it just i don't know that there's a silver bullet god let's just hope that future generations of oxide engineers are coming back to this recording and be like when did demo day get so fucked up around uh, like oh like, <laughs> take these cucumbers buddy <laughs> exactly that's right all right I uh, I think so. We do want. I know I said this last week, but I think uh, we we are going to come up to one that we want to actually schedule on European time. So I, I think we may we'll get our actually act together this coming week, Adam, to get that done. Is that like a commitment? Like a week from today, European hours go. Okay, I can see where this is going, and I agree. I have dropped the ball here. Okay, I get it. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. I uh, let's let's huddle. Let's figure it out. I want okay. to. Okay. So you, uh, what I want the open source, the firmware folks to be able to join. So I need to yeah, check yeah. where they're working So stay tuned. Watch this space. Stay Coming tuned. Back. Watch this space. All right. All right. Th thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. Thank you.